Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. As we begin, let us open in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all of your blessings. We thank you and praise you for who you are, for your righteousness and your love and your justice and your sovereignty and your power. Father, this morning we also thank you, as always, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that out of your love for us, you sent him, born of a woman, God in the flesh, and that he went to the cross and died for our sins. And you raised him from the dead. And whoever believes in your son, Jesus Christ, will never perish, but has eternal life. Father, today we also ask for your protection and guidance and care for all who are here, all who will be listening, all the members of our congregation, Father. You know their needs, their difficulties and challenges, and we know that you're there for them. And that's a great comfort to all of us. We also ask this morning, Father, that the Holy Spirit would guide everything that we're going to do here today so that we would uh, receive the message that you have for us in the Word, that we would uh, would enjoy the company of one another, and that we would be leaving here today um, more determined than ever to carry out your will. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, if you could stand now for the music service today. Except for me, of course, I got to stay standing. I would ask that if uh, if you're able to, that you would keep your masks on when we're in service today. I just um, just want to protect everybody. As you know, we have a history now of uh, having to um, mourn the loss of two of our most precious people because of that disease, and so that. I would just like to make sure we don't have anybody here who would contract it. So thank you for your consideration with that. All right. Every month we do feature a different missionary organization that's bringing the gospel to different places in the world or to different communities in this country. This month we're featuring Basic Training Bible Ministries. Basic Training Bible Ministries, led by Gene Cunningham and his wife Nan I know many of you have met him, know him. Um, he's an incredible guy. They're both incredible couple. Um, they've dedicated their, their lives to the um, mission of preaching the gospel and training up pastors. Their mission, as I mentioned, includes evangelism, as well as training pastors and workers in remote regions of the world. Uh, they have gone and Gene's been establishing Bible schools for many years in Africa, India, and Papua New Guinea. So you can see that they've been all over, and uh, Nan, when she goes with her husband, works with the pastor's wives. She's also developed Bible schools for children in India, as well as Papua New Guinea. Um, we, uh, also, they also conduct missions training camps, as well as conferences in the United States, North America, and Australia. So we would ask, as always, that you keep this great ministry and these people in prayer. If you're able to help out financially, again, let me show you their website. It's www.basictraining.org. There's a lot of great material on there, too. A lot of uh, biblical material, updates from the different um, missionary activities around the world. So that's, again, Basic Training Bible Ministries. We continue in 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning. You could turn to 1 Timothy 5.17, and that's where we'll pick things up today in this letter. 1 Timothy 5.17. 1 Timothy 5.17. The title of today's message is Elders Who Rule Well. Elders Who Rule Well. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 25. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder on the base, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias 
doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. And keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after them. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Well, in chapters 5 and 6 of the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul, the apostle, is instructing his protege, Timothy, about how to lead and treat and treat and minister to different groups of people within the congregation. Now, we saw he's, in the first part of chapter 5, he was dealing with the widows and how they should be treated and taken care of and how they should behave. Well, now today, as you can see from the first verse today in verse 17, he's now turning his attention from the widows to the elders, to the elders. Now, first of all, today, Paul gives Timothy guidance about how the congregation should treat elders. Then he deals with accusations made against elders. And Paul really is setting forth the legal procedures for how a church should take up an accusation against an elder. Of course, this is very serious business, and Paul, as it were, puts the fear of God into Timothy to make sure that he follows the proper procedures and he's objective rather than showing partiality as he's deciding that kind of a case. Then he tempers his harshness to Timothy by expressing concern about his health. And finally, he has this great insight into the human condition that he shares with Timothy. It has to do with both sins and good deeds. So that, at, an, at a nutshell, that is what this passage is, includes today. And as always, we're going to begin one verse at a time or two at a time and to see him get more information, more meaning out of what this letter says here. So let's begin. 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, sometimes Paul uses the word overseer, and other times he uses the word elder. They're pretty much equivalent. Basically referring to the leaders of the church that have charge over the congregation. Now, the elders have two duties, as we see here. One is to rule, to be in charge, and the other is to preach and teach. From, from, the, from, from verse um, 17, we see that there are not all of the elders preach and teach, but some of them do. Okay? They're all considered to be those who rule and, and oversee the church. I'd like you to turn in this regard to 1 Timothy 5. Hold your place in 1, 1 Timothy 5. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 13, where Paul brings the same subject up. Um, concerning elders and the congregation, the relationship between them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love, because of their work. Again, verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you. See, these are the elders, the overseers, have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. We see those same two duties of the elders here as well in 1 Thessalonians 5. They have charge over you, but also they give you instruction. Those are the two duties of the elders. Okay? And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, because of their service. Now, we saw back in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, and you can go back there now because we're going to continue in that passage, 1 Timothy 5, 17. We'll read that again so we can see. Some, a, one other important detail that, that Paul mentions to Timothy. Those elders who rule well 
are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. I want you to notice the fact that he's talking about some elders being worthy of double honor. We'll see what that means. And they're the ones who rule well. So it's possible to rule well and not to rule well, to rule badly. And then also, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. They put their heart and soul into it. It's not something that the last minute they get up there and say a few words. Okay. So that basically, not only do they have these duties, but they're performing them to the best of their ability. They're ruling well, and they are working hard. Some of them are working hard at preaching and teaching. Now, this word honor, I don't know if you remember, we can't, this, this word we can't, so in connection with the widows. It was in the verb form, honor widows. Um, and it basically means a couple of things. We saw this already. The word in Greek is time. Looks like time, but that's just, the, that's just the transliteration. Actually, time in the Greek, it means of value. Its, it's root meaning is value. Okay? It's often used to, 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 to identify money that's paid. But sometimes, by analogy, esteem. Now, we saw in the connection with the widows that both of those meanings were in play with the widows. That they had to be esteemed highly and honored but also that they would be taken care of financially. Well, it turns out that this, those same two meanings um, are attached here to the relationship, the duty, as it were, of the congregation when it comes to the elders of the church. And the context, remember, it's context. The neighborhood is always important. If you've got a word that means a couple of things and you're not sure which, then you go to the context. Well, it's pretty straightforward here because the very next verse makes it really clear. Notice verse 18 again. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So from verse 18, it's clear that the honor part here has to do with the wages paid to the elders. Okay. So that's important. Now, the word double, it means twice the quantity. It means exactly what it means in the English. Sometimes it's used colloquially or as an expression to mean a lot more. But, but literally the word means twice the quantity. Again, 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now that, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, that's a quotation from the Old Testament. But those, some of you may have a New American Standard, and there you should see it all in capital letters. All right? That's how the New American Standard indicates a quotation from the Old Testament. And it turns out that this quotation is from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And I'd like you to turn there now. Deuteronomy 25, 4. It's very interesting how when Paul is dealing with these relationships, particularly legal kind of relationships, he goes back to the Torah. He goes back to the law. goes back to Deuteronomy. Okay? Not to put people under the law, but to take the principles around it. Remember that the Lord gave the law to the Jewish people for a couple of reasons. One was how they should live. The other was how they should conduct themselves as what's known as a theocracy. In other words, God had set up the nation, and he was the ruler, okay? And so therefore, he issued principles of how they should conduct, how they should lead and uh, administer that nation, including legal principles. They're the best legal principles that you can get. They came from God to his chosen nation. And so Paul draws from that information when he then deals with these issues about the elders here in 1 Timothy 5. So even though we're not under the law, there are principles that are, that are in place, that the Lord has put in place. He put them in place for the nation of Israel, but they're also valid and the best way to go in terms of dealing with administrative matters, whether it be back then or now. Okay. Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Well, this, of course, is an analogy. This is, a, this is a picture. It's saying that in the same way that you don't muzzle an ox while he's threshing, why? That would be counterproductive. That would hinder his work rather than help it. In the same way, you should also realize that the laborer, whoever it might be, is worthy of his wages. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul explains this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9. 
Once again, in 1 Corinthians 9, he will quote this passage in Deuteronomy 25.4. And we learn more from seeing this passage about this subject. Again, it's, it's about the elders and about those who rule well, work hard at preaching and teaching. They're worthy of double honor. The word honor means compensation. And Paul goes into this in some more detail in 1 Corinthians 9.9. 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? In other words, did he want justice for the ox? No. It was used as an analogy. He goes on, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes. For our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope. The thresher, the thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And then he talks about it in terms of the apostles, the ministers, the preachers. He says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, that's the job of a preacher, a pastor, a teacher, an evangelist, to sow spiritual things in you. In other words, give you the words, every word from the mouth of the Lord is nourishment, spiritual nourishment. That's the purpose of our gathering together and hearing the word of God, so that these spiritual truths, may be, we may hear them and believe them and live according to them. Those are the most important things, the spiritual things. And he's saying, if we sow spiritual things in you by preaching God's word, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In other words, what we have to offer is the preaching and teaching of God's word and the guidance and the ministration and the rulership. But what you have to offer is, in return, are material things. So he's basically putting up this, this, this kind of arrangement that how things ought to work so that both the preacher and the congregation receives what they need. Now, we're all members of the body of Christ and we're given different gifts. Some have the gifts to preach and teach. Others have the gift of giving. But all the members of the congregation share in doing what they can to support the, the pastor, the, the evangelists, the ministry. And that's the point here. Um, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? <laughs> so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel, the preachers, the teachers, to get their living from the gospel. You know, there's, there's, there's an attitude sometimes in the church that it's wrong for a pastor to, to receive wages. That's not what the Bible says. I mean, that might be, that might be something that people, you know, maybe wish was true. <laughs> Or that they, 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 they think that somehow it's like, it's like not worthy of the pastor to be worried about finances. I don't know what you tell their kids or their wife when you take that attitude, but some people do. It's not biblical. I mean, it's laid out really clearly here. The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. It was true in the Old Testament that priests received part of the tithe for their own use. Okay. Um, so that's what he's pointing out as a principle. And basically, what's the principle? The Lord expects those who benefit spiritually from the ministry of elders and preachers and teachers in particular to adequately compensate them. Let me say that again. The Lord expects those who benefit spiritually from the ministry of the elders and the preachers and teachers particularly to adequately compensate them. You know, and there was a time when I really didn't, I guess it's still this way, but less so, didn't want to preach on this subject because it seems so self-serving. But then I realized that I'm not really the one who's presenting this information. I mean, I am, but this is the Lord's word, and my job is to communicate it, all of it, and this is part of it, all right? Why? Because this is the way for a church to actually flourish, that for people to continue to get fed spiritually. There comes a point in time that if a, if a man can't support his family, um, he's going to have to figure something out. And that, that something out might be to the detriment of the ministry. Okay, Might not, but it might be. But in any event, this is, a, this is really a matter of justice that he's saying. He's saying those who are benefiting spiritually ought to take care of the material needs of the communicator and of the elders. And I want to mention just for a moment in our own congregation um, how remarkable our elders, not me, because okay, I am compensated. But the other elders that work here, okay, that, that are in charge, they don't get paid. As a matter of fact, they actually support the ministry financially as well. That's remarkable. I hope you appreciate that. I mean, we just lost Steve in Maryland. Well, they were the par excellence. I mean, they, Steve did whatever 
he could to help us, you know, keep this ministry going. And in case it's a surprise to anybody, he was incredibly generous. He basically carried the ministry financially as well. That's amazing. Why? Because the elders are supposed to be receiving the compensation. But he did it. He gave it in addition to what he was doing. Mark, Jack, same thing. So I just want to compliment and actually hope you appreciate those men for the double sacrifice that they are making to keep this ministry going. All right, 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Let's go back to 1 Timothy now and continue. 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Do not receive an accusation against an elder. Woo, that changed quick, right? So I'm like real happy to preach on the compensation of elders, but now we get into this other side where elders are accused of things. See, you know, with great, with great privilege comes great responsibility. And, and, and I've mentioned this to you many times. The lives of candidates for elders and elders have to be exemplary. For a lot of reasons. One is we're going to see how can, a, how can a man stand in judgment of another man and at the same time be committing the same kind of sins that they are. That's not going to work. But even more important was the fact that that would bring shame and, re, and really ruin the reputation of the congregation, of the church. That's worse because that also means that the message that is being preached has been compromised. This is human nature. You know, you see it. I mean, the world loves to put a spotlight on any kind of sin that's being committed by a pastor. You know that. Why? Because the world is against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They like nothing better to do something that would hinder it being received by people. All right? And that's a great way to do it is to shine a spotlight on the sins and foibles of those who are leaders in the church. But again, that puts... The, the, the pastors and the elders in a place where we really have to be careful to be examples, not only in what we, how we lead the church, but in our own lives. How we, how we carry out what the Word of God has to say is the way that Christians should live. All right. Again, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, this is a principle of jurisprudence, of legal, conducting a legal trial that says that there have to be two or three witnesses, eyewitnesses, to whatever it is this man is being accused of. People saw it. They observed it for themselves. If you don't have that, then you have no case. I mean, haven't we seen so many times in our own country where there's rumor and innuendo that actually... you know, somebody's tried in the press and the media, and there's no witnesses. There's just people trying to spin these different things. Well, that's unbiblical. You have to have two or three eyewitnesses of anything before an accusation can be leveled, especially against an elder in a church, because that's a serious thing. Then he goes on, though. It's interesting. Notice what he says. Those who continue in sin. What is that saying? It's saying, okay, an elder is in an area of sin. He's called on it, okay? He's, two or three witnesses have called him on it, okay? Now, at that point, you know, uh, he, he has the opportunity now to stop. It's real simple. Stop it, okay, before it gets worse. You're saying if they, if, they, if they see that accusation, if someone's come to them, presented it to them, challenged them about it, they have an opportunity to stop. If they don't, then things are going to get ratcheted up against them. All right, notice this. Those who continue in sin, they ignore the uh, warning, so to speak, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. Now, now, the context, of course, tells us that this is happening. That at least one of the elders has received an accusation against him from somebody in the congregation. Okay? And that's a crisis for any congregation. I mean, here you have, a, every, you know, every week we gather together, and let's say I'm, I'm, I'm the preacher, um, and all of a sudden somebody's leveling an accusation against me of a serious kind. That's a crisis in the congregation, right? Is it true? Is it false? That there, there's a lot of room for people to get in there with rumors and so forth. Maybe it is true. How are you going to get to the bottom of that? Well, Timothy actually, was, he was on the scene. He was the representative of the apostle. And it was, it was he that had to conduct the court case now. That's what it would be. To determine the guilt or innocence of this elder. And that had to be done correctly. There had to be principles that were followed. 
That's one of the great things about the United States of America. At least theoretically, we have a legal system that pretty much lines up with the Bible, meaning innocent until proven guilty. There has to be evidence and witnesses. All right? The same thing in the church. Okay? Timothy was, was called upon because of his unique position at the time to be the one who conducted the hearing, the trial. Now, today we don't have apostles and we don't have apostles um, associates like Timothy. And so now this falls to the other elders in the church to carry this out. Okay? That's why it's a crisis also. Okay, because you have, you can, by net, naturally, we have this break now between elders and the one under being accused, under accused. So it's a serious thing, and we're going to see it's both ways. It's a serious thing to be accused. It's a serious thing to make an accusation if it's not true. And Timothy's job was to figure out guilt or innocence. Now, once again, we, he relying on jurisprudence, legal principles that come from the Old Testament law. I want you to please turn to Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19. We're going back to Deuteronomy today. Why? Because it has to do with legal principles that are valid across time. They were introduced, Deuteronomy 19.15. They were introduced from Moses giving the Torah from God to instruct how the nation of Israel should conduct its affairs. I mean, these principles are still valid today for us. Deuteronomy 19.15. Do not receive an accusation against an elder. We just see that in 1 Timothy except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That's the key. Two or three witnesses. Why? Well, because if there's one witness, that witness maybe has a grudge against him. Not only that, but it can't be confirmed, right? We, have to, we talk about a he said, she said. Only here it's a he said, he said, right? So you need more than one. I mean, it's, it's common sense, okay? But in the heat of the moment, a lot of times you throw out common sense or good legal principles, right? Because people are upset, people are angry, and so forth. Now, somebody's got to hold, you know, hold their head, keep things objective, play by the rules, okay? Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Ah, that's where Paul got this from. Deuteronomy chapter 19. He goes on, Moses in the law. If a malicious witness, that's a liar, rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute, the one being accused and the one making the accusation, shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. Now they had those offices in the nation of Israel. They had priests, they had judges. Notice, though, that who is it ultimately that they're standing before? The Lord. You know, uh, Paul is going to warn Timothy. He's saying, you're doing this in the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. You see, that's what's really going on here. Yeah, there are human beings down here on earth that are conducting this trial, but never forget who's really conducting it, who's really overseeing it. Right? You should do what you're doing as unto the Lord as if he were in the courtroom. That's what he's saying. It's a serious, serious matter. All right. Then he goes on, verse 18. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. Thoroughly. In other words, this shouldn't should be like a trial by night with, in secrecy. No, they should investigate thoroughly. They should take their time, gather the information, gather the evidence. And if that witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, watch how serious that is then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Hmm. That's interesting. That's something we don't have in the United States. But what it's saying is, is if, if, if I accuse you of murder, right, and that's a capital offense, let's say, it's first-degree murder, right, you get the death penalty. If you're found to be innocent, guess what? I get the death penalty. Now, if we had that in place, there'd be a heck of a lot less business in our courts, Right? If people who were saying something like, if you said, you know what, you owe me a million dollars and I'm going to sue you, right? Well, if there's no basis for the suit, guess what? Under this principle, you've got to pay the other guy a million dollars. Wouldn't that make a lot fewer cases if they were doing that? Of course, it's, it's, it's a little harsh, I suppose you could say. Um, but that's the way the Lord set it up. He says, listen, if somebody accuses you of a serious sin, that carries with it. Now remember, back in the nation of Israel days, many of the sins were capital sins. In other words, there were many uh, uh, situations. In fact, pretty much 
anything that was against the Ten Commandments, just about, would result in the death of the person who did it. So this is serious business. And therefore, to make it keep things on the up and up, the Lord said, now here's the thing. If you accuse them falsely, whatever punishment they were supposed to get, you're going to get. It's a very serious matter to the Lord. Notice though what else happens. Verse 19, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. It's never, by the way, just about those two people. You always have to remember everybody who's observing it. They're going to learn one way or the other. They're either going to learn what justice is all about, or they're going to learn how to skirt the law. Right? They're either going to realize the seriousness of certain sins, or they're not. Well, this was designed to make sure the people understood the seriousness of making a false accusation. He says, then you shall purge the evil from among you. It affects the whole congregation. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. So it sounds harsh, but it's not only justice for the people involved, it's also taking care of everybody else to make sure there's no confusion about how serious the Lord takes certain matters. I want to point out one other thing, which is, this is not, this has nothing to do with your relationship with God over sins. Because we know all of them have been paid for at the cross. We know that our sins and iniquities he remembers no more. We know that he's forgiven us of all our sins. However, he also loves the body of Christ. And anything, he says this many times. When we were in 1 Corinthians, he said the same thing. If you do something to harm the church, then you're going to be treated harshly. That's what's at issue here. He loves the church. Anything that would hurt the church, he's going to deal with swiftly. All right? And so that's the thing to understand. You've got to separate how discipline works in the congregation, in the church, in the human realm, and how the Father treats us as his children. Those are separate things. Don't confuse them. Okay? Why? Because the discipline from the Lord is in training, right? All the sons and daughters of the Lord are going to be disciplined in that way. It's not because you sin. It's because you need to be trained up. You need to be, you know, given the right principles, given the right character and so forth. So the rest will hear and be afraid and they'll never again do such an evil thing among you. That's the ultimate thing that the Lord's looking for. You purge the evil from the congregation. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 5 when you had this man who was sleeping with his father's wife. And what did he, what did he say? Get the evil man out of there. The Lord can be really harsh and direct. Why? Not because he's vindictive, but because he cares so much about protecting the purity of the congregation as a whole. And we should too. The elders in particular. So the verdict could go either way. False witnesses could be found out and they would be treated as if they had committed the offense themselves. One other passage, 2 Corinthians 13, 1, has the same principle. I want you to see that it's widespread. It's brought up several times in the New Testament as well as quite often in the Old Testament. Please turn to 2 Corinthians 13, 1. 2 Corinthians 13, 1. I dare say that this is not a popular passage for elders. You know, I mean, uh, one of the virtues of going verse by verse in a book is you can't skip over the stuff that's you know you don't you don't want to deal with. Right? If you say I'm going to have a topical series on grace, right? Then you can put that all together and just have the scriptures on grace. Okay, but unless you have a topical series on church discipline, then you're never going to come across this. And if you look out, you find out that there's really not that many um, churches that are preaching church discipline these days, right? It's not a popular subject. However, it's in God's word. And it's like everything else, like we've had to deal with, with the roles of men and women, not popular today. Nevertheless, they're in place because, you know, Father knows best. He, God knows human nature. He knows how we should be set up as a family, set up as a church in order to protect people, in order to give them the best opportunities to grow spiritually and to have a great life. And he set things up so that would happen. But it goes against our sinful nature, right? That's intentional, because our sinful nature is the thing that can really blow things up in a family, in a congregation, in a nation. 
Okay, so, so we've, done, we've got to take seriously these passages that deal with these difficult subjects. 2 Corinthians 13.1, again, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's a principle, a legal principle. It's a great legal principle. It protects the innocent. It also, also um, makes the case stronger to prosecute the guilty. All right. All right, let's go back now and continue in 1 Timothy 5. Let's go to verse 20 now. 1 Timothy 5.20, a verse-by-verse study this morning of this section of 1 Timothy 5. Those who continue in sin, they didn't get it the first time. They didn't pay attention. They They didn't really absorb the seriousness of what's involved. They didn't take it seriously. Maybe they got subjective. You know, it's a favorite trick of somebody who's been caught in something. To say, well, you just don't like me. Oh, I think you've done worse. Or, you know, to get subjective about it, right? Why? You can wiggle out of it then, okay? But there's no wiggling out of the discipline that the Lord sets up, all right? One way or another, you know, what you reap, what you sow, you will reap. Those who continue in sin, what's the next stage? Here's the next stage. Rebuke in the presence of all. Nobody wants that, right? It's one thing for the elders, right, to know, what's going on with you and need, telling you you need to correct something in your life, boy, it's another thing to have that thing broadcast. And literally now, I mean, back then in Paul's time, they didn't have the internet, right? But today, if we were to conduct something like that here, you know, it would go out, right? It'd be on video for everybody to see forever. Nobody wants that. But the Lord set it up that way on purpose so that you would correct matters before it got to that. Before you, you had a situation where somebody had to stand up until we've already had two or three witnesses. We went to him privately. It didn't make any difference. He's continuing to do this. Now we're going to bring everybody in and hold them accountable. That's tough, but sometimes it has to be done. A lot of times that, that word rebuke doesn't just mean get up and say something. It also means that there's some particular discipline that's applied. Maybe he's removed from the board of elders. Right? Maybe he's actually removed from the congregation. All right, back. You know, there's, I don't know if you've experienced this, but there's times when you're, I'm on the phone with people and we're talking about something important, you know, in the church, spiritually speaking, a spiritual principle, and all of a sudden the, the line goes down. All of a sudden it's like, hey, you there? Are you there? And I, I wonder sometimes, you know, if that's just a coincidence or if, you know, he, after all, he's the prince of the power of the air, Right? So it's a short leap to say he's a prince of the power of the airways. <laughs> In any event, enough of that. Again, 1 Timothy 5.20, we just saw those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. The purpose of discipline, this is so important, is to convince a person to stop sinning. Okay? It is, it is not to embarrass somebody. It is not to have them get up there and confess all their sins to the world. There's one purpose. Stop it. Right? So we've seen this in other places where Paul says the same thing. Stop it. Put a, lay aside the old man. Just stop doing what you've been doing. Right? The Bob Newhart approach. Remember that? Stop it. So that's the purpose of discipline. It's to stop somebody from sinning in, in a certain area that's serious. Now, if the, if the mild discipline, you know, being, being uh, confronted with it privately... If that doesn't work, then more severe discipline has to follow. Why? Because whatever it takes to get you to stop it, you know, should be administered. Remember Paul, we already started in this letter, when he was dealing with some of the heresies going on, he named two people, right? And then he said, I've turned them over to Satan, right? Not because he wants to see them punished, but so that they may change their mind and, and come back. All right, so that's what's going to happen. The Lord's got it set up so that there will be more and more severe discipline. And again, this is that the church administers in order for the person, particularly the elder, to stop sinning. Jesus put this, this principle in great terms in the Gospel of Matthew. I'd like you to turn there to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 15. 
This is what's called progressive discipline. You progress the more and more severe if it doesn't work. Okay? Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's really the same thing that Paul is talking to Timothy about. How to run the congregation. How to deal with sin in the congregation between brothers. All right. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If your brother sins, get on the, get on the internet, post his sin on Facebook, and then ask everybody to comment. Is that what that says? No. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. In other words, you face him yourself and you tell him what's going on, right? In private. That's the first step. You know, hopefully, if anybody's got some humility and objectivity, that'll be enough. You know, to have a brother come to you and point out how you've been sinning against them, that ought to be enough, right? I think probably for 90% of people, that would be enough. But, so if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Things are back where they should be. But if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you. Why? So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. There it is again. The two or three witnesses. <laughs> Bring one or two with you. So you have two or three witnesses now. If he still refuses to listen to you and your two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. Isn't that the same thing? We just saw that with Paul saying the same thing to Timothy. You know, Have the two or three witnesses to confirm it. If he keeps on sinning, then you go to the church. You go public, as it were. You go to the congregation. And then, if he refuses to listen even to the church... Now, remember that he's gotten a private message. He's had two or three come with him and challenge him and, and, and confront him with it. He's, that hasn't worked. Then you go to the church. It's in public. He still doesn't care. So, whatever. Blind, stubborn, um, weak, whatever, whatever that thing is, he's going to continue to commit the sins. What does he say? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What is he saying? Throw him out of the church. That's basically what he's saying. Okay. There, so here's the principle, real simple. There comes a time when a sinner must be rebuked in front of the congregation. Now that's uncomfortable. That seems harsh. It, seems, it, would be, it will be difficult. If we ever have to deal with this, right? And we, we follow, hopefully we follow the principles, two or three witnesses, examine thoroughly. Right, then confront the man, and then he doesn't change. He keeps on sinning. There comes a time when he will be, should be rebuked in front of the entire congregation. That'll be a tough day. Tough day for all of us. But sometimes it comes to that. And, you got, and if it does come to that, we just have to realize that this is for the best, for the person involved, okay, and also for the congregation and the reputation of the church. There comes a time. All right, but here's the thing. You know, he talks about sinning, those who continue in sin, if your brother sins. Well, what sins are in view? I mean, when I'm reading through this, I think to myself, if every sin has to be dealt with this way, the court's going to be open 24-7, you know what I'm saying? Because we all sin every day, right? I mean, it's true, we do. In in thought, in word, or in deed, right, we're all committing sins, okay? So it cannot mean any all sin, right? It's got to be some particular sins, but the question is, which ones? Well, here's which ones. Again, always look at the context. It has to be referring to a serious sin that an elder persists in, even after being warned in private. I want you to notice that it's serious. (laughs) It has to do with the office of being an elder. And again, as we've seen already, he persists in it after being warned in private. Well, of course, now we have to say, well, what would those serious sins be? You got an elder. What kind of sins would be serious sins for a person, for a man in that office? Well, there are, there are standards that are given to the elders. Standards that, that they're qualifications that they must meet. And so it stands to reason now that the serious sin would be violations of those standards because there's a particular to that office. Those are the most serious ones. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. But for example, 
You know, if, uh, if misusing funds, now it's never a good thing, it's never good anywhere, it's always wrong. But if you're the man in the congregation who's the leader, and people are entrusting you with the funds to manage them correctly, and then you're taken out of the till, that's a very serious sin for that office, okay? So the question is, well, okay, what are those standards? What are the standards that elders are held up to? And we've already seen the answer. Again, always look at the neighborhood. Always go in context. Particularly, always go back and say, what have we already learned that we can bring forward here to make sense out of that question? What are these serious sins? And the answer is the qualifications of an elder. And we've already seen that. Please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. We've already seen these qualifications. They don't, they don't disappear after somebody's ordained as an elder, put in place as an elder. There's still standards that the elders should live up to. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach. That's the overall principle. There can't be anything that he's involved in that would bring reproach on the congregation, on the message of the gospel. Then the specifics. The husband of one wife. Right? A one-woman man, a man who's faithful to his wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. By the way, able to teach correctly. All right? Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, ah, free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It's a great question. Not a new convert. right? Don't lay hands on somebody too hastily. Not a new convert. So that he will become conceited. Hey! I'm, you know, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Arrogance. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So here we see what some of the most serious sins are for an elder to commit. The kind where there should be two or three witnesses and then he should be confronted about. And if after that he continues in that sinful behavior, then you go to the church as a whole. Well, here are several of them that come right out of these qualifications. The first one is heresy. If you're an elder and you're teaching heresy, then that is a huge problem. That has got to be dealt with in the most serious way possible. But not just that. Greed is another one. Again, mishandling the funds of the church. Paul's going to go on in chapter 6 to talk about this. He's basically going to say the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, in 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 the office of an elder, if he's got that love of money and it's leading to all kinds of evil, that has to be dealt with. So heresy, greed... And interestingly, drunkenness, alcohol addiction is another one. That should be obvious. If somebody's under the influence and they're trying to make... Imagine you go into the court and the judge has got a bottle of whiskey. And he's just going... All right, so who's here? I don't even know who's here. Just tell me what a great day it is. All right, You got any evidence there? Oh, yeah, don't worry. I bet you do. I mean, if you're under the influence of alcohol, you're not going to do your job very well. Okay, no matter what it is, but if it's the serious job of evaluating an accusation, for example, um, or any of the functions of an elder in ruling, they just don't go together. Okay, again, it's something that you go privately. You say, "Listen, we know maybe you're struggling, maybe you got a family problem, but you got to stop this. You can't be an elder and be drunk all the time." Hopefully, that works. If it doesn't, then it gets serious. Then you have to go to the congregation. It's the, worst, it's the worst fear of any elder to have to do that to a fellow elder. But it can happen. The other one is sexual sin. Notice the husband of one wife. Adultery in particular. All right? An elder who commits adultery is really causing trouble. Now, this is where it gets to the wider community. Right? We talked about this before. There are any, any, if you have a standard that even the unbeliever lives up to, and you're a guy who's running, you know, managing, ruling the church, doesn't live up to it, See, that's going to bring rebuke upon the church. They look at that. They say they're all holy and mighty. They've got the truth. They've got the good news. They don't even know any better than to leave a guy who's an adulterer in position. 
But even there, right, if you present it to them in private first, same principles uphold. And then they say, yeah, you know, that's wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I get how serious this is. I'm done. Then that's it. Oh, see, that's unlike what happens, right? I mean, once that happens in the, most churches, the rumor mill goes out. The, they they, they, they want to you know, make it public right away and all that stuff that they do. All right, well, you've got to follow the principles of how of the Lord tells you how you should deal with it. Go to him in private. Bring two or three with you. If, they still don't li- if he still doesn't listen, then you, go, then you go public. Now, let's continue as we, as we close today. Look at verse 21 now. 1 Timothy 5.21. Now, now, Paul is through explaining the principles involved, all right, in, in making a judgment, a guilt or innocence, and then the discipline that follows it. He's laid that all out. But now he turns back to Timothy, the one who's going to be conducting these inquiries. And what does he say? I solemnly charge you. See, in the same way that it's serious for the person committing it, or serious for a person to accuse somebody falsely, it's serious business for you, Timothy. I charge you again in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias. Here's, there are two things that a judge can do that are unforgivable in that sense. One is bias. And what's the other one? Do nothing in a spirit of partiality. He has to maintain, Timothy has to maintain the highest ethical standards of anybody. And he has to be diligent about his duty to stick to principle. He says he cannot be biased. What does that mean? What is bias? In connection with what we're talking about, with judging people, um, particularly elders who have had an accusation made, really simple. He can't prejudge the case. He has to look at all the evidence before Sounds pretty straightforward, but it's surprising how often this isn't adhered to. Surprising how often somebody says, yeah, I knew it. I knew he was doing involved in that. You know, they don't want to go through the process of hearing the evidence. That's bias. Okay, that's bias. We also call it prejudice, right? We know that in, in, in our society, what is prejudice? Judging somebody on the basis of something that is irrelevant to the, you know, skin color or gender or whatever. Those different prejudices that we have. Prejudging, right? Don't have to look at the evidence. Don't have to look at a man's character and a man's values and a man's work. Just, well, look, he's got that skin color. You know, he's got to be this and that and all the other things. That's prejudice. Well, the same thing happens, you know, in, in cases where you're evaluating somebody who's been con- accused of something. By the way, that's where, you know, sometimes in, in legal proceedings, they say you can't bring that in because it's, it's prejudicial, Right? That's the same kind of thing. No, focus on what's being being accused of right now. That's bias. Then he says, do nothing in a spirit of partiality. What does that mean? He can't be partial to anybody on either side. He can't be partial to the one who made the accusation. Oh, he would never lie. Or he can't be partial to the one who's being accused. He would never do something like that. See, partiality means you're subjective. Or the way it's put in the Bible a lot, respecter of persons. You know, it's not, it's not just that anybody would do this. Come on, it's Bill, or it's George, or it's Mary, right? Being partial, a respecter of persons. Now, what are the kind of things that can make a person partial? Well, the big one is personal relationships, you know? You know, what if your, what if your uncle was being accused of something? Can you see how you'd be, really have to be careful not to be, you know, um, respecter of that person? Of not of trying to maintain your subject, your, your objectivity, not to be partial. It'd be hard. Personal relationships. The other one, though, is the rich and powerful, right? You know, you have one person who's being accused of something. The rich, rich person, you know, very rep- respected in the community, and then you have this other person who's making the accusation, and they're lower class. They don't have much money. People wonder about that person, right? So the natural inclination is to be on the side of the rich and powerful, right? Then that's, not, that's being partial, right? Now, these are hard standards to live up to. You have to be really honest. You have to have some intellectual integrity to realize that um, even beforehand, say, you know what? 
this is somebody I have a relationship with. This is a friend. This is a family member. I realize that I'm weak as anybody. If I don't make a serious intention to just stick to the facts, I could very easily slip into partiality. So it requires somebody to really stand for principle, no matter who it is. Not easy thing to do. Not easy thing to do. But notice what Paul does to bring this. He says, listen, I told you that you have to have two or three witnesses, right? So when you're hearing something, Timothy, you have to be two or three witnesses in order for that to be confirmed. Well, guess what? Now that I'm telling you what, 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 what you could go wrong on, I got my three witnesses. Only who are his three witnesses? God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels. He said, those are my witnesses. He says, I hope that you don't do anything in front of them that would cause you to be um, needing an accusation that would go to that court. Okay. They're the ultimate judges. Never forget that. The, the, the Lord, the God, the Father, ultimate judges. Their decisions are always fair, and their decisions are always final. So we're always, or we're always under their watch, no matter what. Verse 22. We're going to wrap up here. Do not lay hands upon anyone hastily, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. It's saying that those who have the authority to lay hands on someone, to to kind of tell them that they're a member now of the board of elders, right? They have a special responsibility. If you do that hastily, without considering, without being deliberate, looking at the evidence, and then that person goes on and preaches heresy or tells people that these, these sins don't matter and all that kind of thing, now guess what? You're the one who vouched for him, you're responsible for his behavior. That's tough. That's tough. That's some of the, that's, people don't want that either. You know, people who, who, who are bringing up younger men and, and want them to be ordained and so forth, they don't want responsibility for them afterwards. Right? But you have responsibility, whether you like it or not. Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and share responsibility, therefore, for the sins of others and keep yourself free from sin. What is he saying? He's saying don't short-circuit the process. Gather your evidence, make your observations, take the time, carefully evaluate each candidate. The Lord has given us those qualifications for a reason, use them, investigate them. Okay. He's saying if you overlook evidence of sinful tendencies or that lack of good deeds, that's another one. You know, we're not supposed to judge people by their deeds except when it comes to an office in the church. I don't know how many times I've said that. It's so important. You have the right to evaluate an officer. Okay, me, any of the elders. Okay, why? Because we're held to a higher standard because of the stakes involved, because of the responsibilities that we have, because of the, of the shame that can come on the church if we, if we misbehave. But on the way in, if you're going to lay hands on somebody and you overlook, well, yeah, it's not that bad. Yeah, he has, maybe he has five or six drinks on the weekend, but it's probably no big deal. You know, those kind of things. Well, maybe it isn't, but you better investigate, right? You if, you, if you don't spot that, you overlook it, now you're responsible once they get into office. That doesn't only implicate them, right, if they're involved in these things, but it harms the congregation. And above all, Timothy must flee from temptation himself. The last thing you'd want to see was for him to be accused of the very thing he's ruling on. We have all too, altogether too much of that. Where people who are judging somebody, condemning somebody, are guilty of the same sins. Right? Take the beam out of your eye before you try to get the splinter out of the other guy's eye. Okay. Then, verse 23, we'll go through this quickly. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I have some stomach problems and frequent ailments. See, I'm, I'm drinking water exclusively behind the pulpit today. What does that mean? Hey, Jack, you got a little wine? <laughs> That's not what it means. But here's the point. See, now Paul has been really heavy with Timothy, right? Now he takes a break from that. And he expresses basically concern for his health. And he also doesn't want him to get the wrong idea about keeping himself pure and, um, and keeping yourself free from sin. He's basically saying this. He's saying, listen, Drinking wine for your ailments 
That is a far cry from being addicted to wine. In other words, we've got to have balance here, right? If, if somebody, um, you know, tells a white lie, okay, that is not the same in terms of the seriousness that needs to be evaluated as somebody who has a habit of lying about important things, about other people in the congregation. So you've got to, you've got to maintain your sense of balance here. That's another thing that Paul is, is doing here. Verse 24, we're almost done. The sins of some men are quite evident. Isn't this true? Quite evident. Easy to spot. They go before them to judgment. In other words, their their sins are on the scene before they are. Oh, we know all about that, right? Well, that person might not be able to get a fair shake because all people want to talk about are the sins that everybody knows about. On the other hand, for others, their sins follow after. They're hidden behind them. You don't see them right away. You need to be aware of that if you're evaluating men, all right? The Lord has given some great wisdom and insight into human nature here. Okay, there's some men who, for whatever reason, the kind of things they're involved with are very obvious to people. That doesn't mean the other one who's, who's able to hide it is any better. In fact, you could say they're worse. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident. And those which are otherwise can't be concealed. And really here, Paul is cutting some slack for Timothy. He's basically saying, listen, it's not always easy to spot defect in a man's character. You know, they could slip through. Some men hide their sins. It's just the way it is. But they'll eventually be discovered. Some men try to conceal their evil deeds. They'll be found out. But what does that mean? What's the implication there? The implication is really simple. Give it some time. That's why he says, don't lay hands too hastily. Give it some time here. Give it the time for the person whose sins were in front of him to actually be able to evaluate it objectively. And give it some time for the people that are hiding their sins for that to become obvious. Don't make hasty decisions about a man's character. You can't tell a book by its cover. And first impressions are not always the right ones. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again today for giving us this opportunity to evaluate and hear, be convicted about some serious matters that every church has to face straight on. But Father, we know also that because of the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, we know that you have dealt with the sin problem once and for all when it comes to our relationship with you. That we are reconciled. There's no barriers anymore between us and you. You've forgiven us all our sins. So, so help us to always have that hope at the same time understanding in a practical way and how we treat each other here on earth makes a big difference for the furtherment of the gospel and the well-being of the members of the congregation. Help us to keep both of those things firmly in our hearts. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Every Thursday we have a Bible study. Now, because of the COVID virus, we're holding it now on Skype. Begins at 6.30. We're studying the book of Isaiah. There's information about it every week. Um, we have a little post on the website so you can get the information you need to join us. We encourage everybody to do so. At the end of that Bible study, every week we pray. We get a lot of requests from people. We try to pray for all of them. Um, so <laughs> if, it's, if, it, if it's possible, please join us. also want to mention that our giving policy comes directly from the Bible, under the church, the principles of grace, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is basically to say that as the Lord has blessed you, given you more than you need, so too you should then freely, you have the freedom now, to make your decision about how you want to bless the church financially. Even more important, how you want to bless those in need in the church. That's our first duty. We saw that with the widows. But so the Lord will lead you and it's a free decision, right? As a matter of grace, appreciation, response to what the Lord has done for you. But not under, not, not under coercion, right? That's, what, that's what's wrong with tithing. It says you have to. That's not the church age principle. It's grace, right? You want to, all right? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for, again, for all that you've given us. We thank you that you've given us the greatest gifts of all. You've given us the gift of your son, the gift of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts, the gift of being in union with your Son, Jesus Christ, forever, the gift of our spiritual gifts, 
the gift of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we could go on and on and on, and we should in our prayer life, Father. Help us to have that gratitude in our hearts and let it guide us according to how we treat one another. And that it would be your love with which you've loved us, which would also be in our hearts so that we can love others. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, you're dismissed to enjoy the day. It's like a New England fall day out there now. And I love it. So enjoy the day and uh, hopefully see all of you on Thursday on Skype. Failures, you won't.